Well, as you were hearing that letter being read, I don't know if, if you had this reaction, but I did. It was like, yay, finally we've gotten to a letter where the church wasn't acting badly. This is a church where there's no mention of them being complacent. There's no mention of them striving for self-sufficiency. They're just a good church. But they're also a very small church. They're also a poor church. They're also a church that doesn't appear to be growing. They're just a faithful church. And Jesus is writing them. He's writing this small, faithful church to encourage them that they are called to a mission. And this mission will require them to be great. And so he wants to build them up in that. At the beginning of the fall, we talked about what the church is. We said the church is people devoted to God in community on mission for God's glory. This is a church full of people who are devoted to God, who are in community. And now Jesus is speaking words of hope and encouragement to them so that they can continue in the mission no matter what comes their way. And as we've looked at this this book of Revelation, we've seen that it came to the early church at a time when persecution was just beginning to happen to the Christians. It was written in either the time of the emperor Domitian or his predecessor Nero, both of whom persecuted Christians in the most horrific of ways. Shortly after them, another emperor would come into power. His name was Trajan, and he ruled from 98 to about 117 A.D. And he continued the persecution by making it illegal to be a Christian. So if you were accused of being a Christian, you were brought before the proconsul or the imperial governor, and you were asked if you were a Christian. If you said you were a Christian, you were, you were told that you needed to curse Christ and worship the gods or the emperor. And if you did that, your life would be spared. But if you didn't, you would be tortured and then executed. And so the book of Revelation was written... To, to prepare Christians for that. It wasn't written so, uh, so you know, they'd be scared that one day far in the future there would be Y2K or Miley Cyrus. It was to prepare them for what was right in front of them, the trials that were about to face them. And the cool thing about this is it worked. We know that this worked, that the book of Revelation worked for the people it was written to originally. This past week, as a church staff, we, we've been doing a, an objectives workshop. And so because I've been in kind of like object, objective mode making, I started thinking about the objective of the book of Revelation. And if the book of Revelation's objective was to prepare Christians to face trials and suffering with great resolve and hope, it did the job. We actually have a historical account of a trial of six Christian men in Carthage. And they stood before the proconsul, um, whose name was Saturnius. And Saturnius said to them, Swear now by the Lord our emperor. And we actually have a transcript of this trial. And the, the spokesman for the Christian men said, We have committed no wrong. We have committed no theft. When we buy something, we pay taxes on it. We do all of this because we know our Lord, who no one sees with these eyes, who is the king of kings and the emperor of all nations. And Saturnius says, okay, have a delay for 30 days and rethink this. But the men said, no, we are Christians. So Saturnius then says, since you have persisted, it is determined that you will be put to the sword 
And they all answered, thanks be to God. That's pretty incredible. But what's really incredible about this is not just how bravely they faced death for the sake of Christ, but they quoted Revelation. Their responses were quoting Revelation 19.16. So it worked. So if, if you're wondering, like, how, how, do I, how do I build up some resolve? How do I have the kind of strength that we see in the early Christians, in the early church? Don't avoid Revelation. Read it. Meditate it. Memorize it. It worked. In this book, Jesus gave people, gave to people truths that if they let those truths sink deep into their heart, made them people of great endurance. How are you doing? How are you with endurance? I can't even endure a diet. Like, uh, how are you doing with peer pressure or worry? Do you want to be a person of endurance? In this book, in particular in this letter, it enabled, there were truths in it that enabled Christians to face all kinds of persecution and suffering. Now, whatever we're facing this week, it's probably not what they faced. We're probably not facing losing our toes or being covered in pitch and lit on fire or having our heads chopped off. But we might this week or next week, or, or this month, or this year, uh, encounter uh, an experience of rejection from our spouse, or a prodigal child, or an overbearing boss, or a pushy friend. Or we might find ourselves in the cancer ward as a patient, or as the child or a parent of the patient. We might realize that the money's not there, and in fact, it's not coming anytime soon. We might be paired uh, in a school project or or a work assignment with someone who constantly undermines or demeans us. We might be tempted to go back to that habit or addiction or sin because we've had a severely disappointing day and we just want some relief. We might work really hard only to watch someone who's much lazier than us get a promotion. So how do we face those things? Christianly? How do we endure? I think the key is really found in the metaphor that Jesus uses in, the, uses in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. He says in verse 8 that I have, I have placed an open door before you. Now, Philadelphia uh, was known as the city of brotherly love because it was named um, by the founder in honor of his brother whom he loved. Um, And just because I don't want anyone to feel stupid or dumb, this is not Philadelphia in the United States. It's a different Philadelphia. It's the original Philadelphia, um, just like um, the Garden of Eden isn't in Missouri, um, unlike our Mormon friends uh, believe. Um, so, So this is a different Philadelphia. But this Philadelphia was also not only known as the city of brotherly love, but it was also known as the gateway to the east. It was a city with a huge open door through which trade and commerce, culture and language was spread from Greece and Macedonia into Asia Minor and Syria. So again, just like we saw Jesus in writing to Sardis and Laodicea, he's using words and pictures and metaphors that the people that he's writing to would have immediately connected with. 
See, Jesus' words to His church, to His people, are always personal and specific. As soon as they heard Jesus say, I have placed an open door before you, they knew. They knew what that meant. They knew what it meant to be an open door and the challenges and the opportunities that that presented. So let me read it again. In verse 8, it says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. And then down in verse 10, it says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Now, you have to kind of keep these things together um, because there's a lot that happens in between verse 8 and verse 10 um, that can get you distracted. But you have to read verse 8 and then go all the way to the because to understand what Jesus is trying to say. And so he says, essentially, I have placed an open door before you because you have kept my command to endure patiently. So here's the truth. Here's the truth that we need so deeply embedded in our hearts to make us people who can patiently endure. A Christian can suffer with purpose. Christian sufferings are not meaningless. If you're here and you're just trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing is about, let me tell you, Christians see suffering, trials, and all pain as purposeful. That's the truth that has to be so deeply embedded in our hearts to make us people to be able to stand like those early Christians. Jesus says, I have placed before you an open door. And in the New Testament, an open door almost always meant an opportunity for the gospel to move forth. Paul uses this metaphor a lot. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians and Colossians. I thought that would get a laugh. I'm sure at the campuses, y'all laughed, right? Y'all enjoyed that, right? Now, an open door is an opportunity uh, for the gospel to go forward and to be successful in a community, in a neighborhood, in a city. That's how it's often used in the New Testament. But here we have this church, and this church isn't growing. It doesn't seem to be successful in that. And so Jesus is writing them a letter trying to encourage them about their mission to not grow weary in what they're doing. He says to them, I know your works, and I know you have little strength. And in the Greek, that just means you're puny. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, I know. You don't have a lot of talent. You don't have a lot of wealth. You don't have a lot of opportunities. You don't have large numbers or money. And on top of that, you're being persecuted by a synagogue, by a synagogue of Satan. And I, 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 wanna, I feel like I need to clear this up real quick. Jesus, when he calls it a synagogue of Satan, he's not making a statement about Jewish people. Jesus himself was Jewish. But what Jesus is saying... And this is what he says throughout Revelation. Any organization or any religious institution or any government that persecutes his church is an agent of the enemy. And so there's this particular synagogue of Jews in the city of Philadelphia that are going after this small church. But this is what he says. He says, listen to me. You're going to be amazed. It won't be long before they as hard as they seem to be, as hostile as they seem to be, begin to realize, I love you. He says, I know you're puny. I know you think that all your effort, that it's not achieving much, that you're not very talented, that, that, that there, there are these people that you'll never have an impact on. But what he says to them is, even though you think that you would, these people would never listen to you, one day they will. You will win over people that you never thought possible to win over. People who you thought were absolutely against you and hostile towards you will be softened 
and even become your friends. And how's that going to happen? He says, the reason I'm going to open that door is because you patiently endure. You may not see it now, but keep with it. There's a kid in my high school who absolutely hated me, um, and I hated being hated, and so I made it my mission for like three of my four high school years to win him over, uh, and I really did. I Like every day, that was one of my objectives, um, and 18 years later, I'm still patiently uh, waiting for that to happen, um, but we all have people in our life that we think there's no way. Every time you you try to have a spiritual conversation, every time you try to open up and share a little bit of your story, you feel like you're hitting a wall. There's people that you think they'll never get the gospel. That's how this church felt. But Jesus tells them that I will open the door if you patiently endure. What he's also saying is he's saying the way you handle closed doors will open doors. He says, the reason I'm going to open the door, the reason people are going to see greatness about you, the reason you're going to overcome, the reason you're going to be able to win people over is because of the way you handle closed doors. Because you have patiently endured when doors have been closed. And what are closed doors? They're just suffering. Closed door is is a metaphor for suffering. Closed doors in our career, closed doors in our health, closed doors in our relationships, that's suffering. You thought you'd be further along by now in your career. You expected to be making more money. You expected to have more friends. You thought your life would be this way. You expected to be married. Closed doors make you suffer. They hurt you. And Jesus says, because you've been so patient in handling those closed doors, I'm going to open others. It's a pretty remarkable statement. What he's saying is suffering is never for nothing. If you and I, if we handle suffering properly, it will turn us into great people who can walk through other doors. If we handle closed doors right, we will, we will use those closed doors. He will use those closed doors in our life to enable us to open others. So I don't know what closed door has been in front of you lately. I don't know where you've experienced some great failure. But the words of encouragement and hope that Jesus is offering this puny, tiny little church is, if you handle it properly, you will turn into somebody who will succeed in some other way. Some way that maybe you can't even imagine right now. The way you handle closed doors will turn you into the kind of people that I can use in other ways. Greatness comes from handling suffering. Now, this is a truth that the Bible teaches over and over again, but we also just see it in our everyday life. In fact, the Greeks had a, had a proverb that said, suffering is education. Now, suffering is pointless if you're an animal, right? That's why, as hard as it is, we put animals down if they're suffering because it has no meaning. But that's not how it is for us. And we know that. If, if you go into any great art gallery, if you listen to any great music in the world, if you listen to any great storytellers, you begin to realize that suffering has enriched people's lives and that the suffering life of an artist is what has made them richer and wiser and deeper and more profound. Suffering can make you much more human. It can enrich you. It can educate you. It can make you the kind of person 
if you handle your closed doors properly to enable you to go through doors that you never would have thought possible. I'm here. I'm a preacher because I have experienced some very painful closed doors in my story. And as much as I would want to erase some of those painful experiences, I can say 100% that I would never want to go back to the person I was on the other side of that door. I wouldn't. And some of you know that. You get that. You know the benefit of suffering. You know what it's done. Suffering can make you the type of person that you can sit across from someone who's in pain, who's just gone through a tremendous tragedy or loss, and without you having to talk about your suffering, they can just look at you and know that you get them and that you see them and that you're there. Now, suffering can make you humbler, but it can also make you go crazy. It can make you more human, but it can also make you harder. It can make you strong, but it could also break you. I'm sure all of us know people who've gone through tremendous suffering, and the result on the other end of that wasn't greatness, but just they were ruined. See, the fact is, suffering will either make you a much better or much worse person than you were, but it will not leave you where you were. It will either make you into a far greater human being, or it will make you into a far harder human being. It will either push you towards a greater wholeness or towards a greater brokenness, but it won't leave you where you are. So what has suffering done to you? Has the suffering, has the closed doors in your life brought about bitterness or has it made you better? The question that we have to ask is, all right, well, how suffering is going to come, it comes to all of us, how do I know that my suffering's for a good purpose? And if you're here and you're wondering about Christianity, this is it. This is, this is the reason. This is, this is the reason that Christianity makes a difference. The difference between knowing that your suffering has a good purpose is in knowing who has the key to all the doors in your life. Jesus starts the letter by saying the words of the Holy One the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now maybe that makes you mad. Maybe you're like, wait, Jesus could have prevented me from experiencing all this. He's claiming authority over all the open and closed doors in my story. That infuriates me. C.S. Lewis really wrestled with this. He experienced quite a bit of suffering in his life. But he came to a point where when he was asked, why do Christians suffer? His response was, why not? They're the only ones who can handle it. In one of his lesser known stories of Narnia, uh, the story, The Horse and His Boy, he begins to unpack and kind of show us through this fictional story, his understanding of God's goodness and his sovereignty. In the story, we see him work out Essentially what Romans 8.28 says, which says God works all things, everything, our sin, our brokenness, our successes, our failures, open and closed doors. He uses all things together for our good. So C.S. Lewis has this story. And in this story, you've got Shasta. He's the main character. He's a young boy, um, but he's a young boy who's been through a lot of tragedy in his life. And he looks at himself as an unfortunate boy. 
He always feels left out. He has horrible things happen to him. And there's this one scene where he's at the lowest point in his life, where he's just devastated, and he, he just begins weeping. And then this is what happens. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly feel any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. And from the, the, the sound of the breathing, Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had to come to notice this breathing so gradually that he really had no idea how long it had been there, but it was a horrible shock. And so as Shasta's making this way, he's hearing this breathing and he's, he's aware of this presence that seems so much larger than him. And it scares him a little bit, but he finally works up the courage to address it. And he says, what are you? And, uh, and the, the thing responds by telling him, well, I'm not a giant and I'm not dead. But then instead of telling him who he is, he just asks him a question. He says, tell me of your sorrows. Which again, what do questions do? Questions always invite relationship. And Shasta doesn't even realize that the thing hasn't identified himself, that he's actually turned the conversation around. And he just begins to unload his pitiful life story. And after he details all the unfortunate experiences he's had, the thing turns to him and says this. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was that lion. And Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with avarice. I was the cat who comforted you along the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horse new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you did not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so it came to shore where a man sat, waitful at midnight to receive you. Who are you? Shasta asked. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly that you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. And as this happens, all of a sudden there becomes so much light that this lion, the lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure in these stories, all of a sudden he appears before Shasta in all his glory. And he's so bright that, that it describes him like being the sun. And what does Shasta do? He jumps off his horse and he falls down and bows before him. Quiet. That's exactly the same thing we saw John do at the beginning of Revelation when he came face to face with Christ as he really is. And then we're told that the eyes of the two of them met. And as, as the lion in all his glory disappeared he got back on his horse and continued on his journey. And then a few days later, he was on another part of the mountain, and he looked back to the path where they had been on, and it sa- he, he said he realized that the path that he was on 
was a cliff. And there was a, a large drop on one side with jagged rocks at the bottom. And Shasta warmly thought to himself, I was quite safe. That's why the lion kept on my left. He was between me and the edge all the time. I don't know what your life has brought you. I don't know the disappointments. I don't know the places where you felt like I have an unfortunate life. But the truth that will cause you to be a person who can be on mission no matter what comes your way is the same truth that these early Christians had. That suffering is never for nothing. That Jesus says closed doors will lead to open ones. That as we endure, our endurance grows. But the other part of that truth is realizing that we aren't in charge. These doors have been opened from the other side. The doors have been closed from the other side. That we're not in charge of our life and neither is chance or karma, but a good sovereign God is writing every scene and every turning point in our story. And the reason, as Christians, we should be okay with this. The reason we should be okay with Romans 8, 28. The reason we should be okay with closed doors is we have the only God in all of the great world religions who knows what what it's like to be locked out. We're told in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as he was getting a sense of what was actually really going to happen to him, as he began to view the, the raging furnace of wrath that he was about to be thrown into, when he realized the pain that was going to be poured out on him, what did he do? Well, he did what any of us would do. He started saying, let me out. I don't, I don't want this. I don't want to die. Let this cup pass by me. He banged on a door that would not open. Now, Jesus could have banged on the door and said, you are a cruel God. You are, you are, you are an awful God. Let me out. But instead, he says, not my will, but thine be done. The one who starts off his letter to the church in Philadelphia by saying, the one that has the key knows what it feels like to be locked out. Now, if we see him doing that, if we see him submitting to that kind of suffering, then we will know that he has the right to close doors. This is how you know a Christian. A Christian is someone who says, Lord Jesus, you are locked out from me. So whatever locked doors I encounter are nothing compared to what you have done for me. In fact, the only door I need to be open, you opened. The door that created a pathway for me to have a relationship with God. If you suffered like this to redeem me, I can suffer knowing that somehow... Something good will come out of this just as something good came out of your suffering. When you see Jesus locked out for you, you will be able to patiently endure. That's how the early Christians could do it. You can suffer in obedience. You can suffer in faith because you know that whatever closed door you encounter, there will be a better door opened. Children hate locked doors. 
Um, I remember as a kid going to my great-grandmother's house, which was really fortunate to be able to go and know your great-grandmother. But she lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was just recently there for my uncle's funeral. And, uh, and we were driving around, and, and my parents decided to drive by my great-grandmother's old house. And we just happened to see the guy who owned it, like, standing out front. So we asked if we could go in. And it was so exciting to kind of go in and have very vague memories of the place. But one memory that I have that is so ingrained in my mind is the locked door in her house. There was this one locked door that led to the basement that as a kid, you just wanted to get in. Like I wanted to get in that locked door. And so I asked the man, I said, hey, uh, do you still have that door to the basement? And he said, yes. And so I walked over to it and guess what? It was locked. It was still locked like years and years later. It's still locked. And I was like, can we open it? (laughs) You know, I was so excited. Like finally I get to see what's down there. And we opened the door and, and there was a stairway that went down into the basement, but it like stopped halfway. So actually, if, if you had tried to go down it, you would just, you just fall eventually because it doesn't go all the way to the ground. And there are all kinds of shelves in there. And, and so I know that it was locked for a reason, right? That as a kid, like if I had gotten in that door, I could have caused all kinds of trouble. I could have been greatly hurt. I could have been poisoned. Who knows what could have happened? Are you screaming and upset because there's a locked door in front of you? Do you think that great adult in the sky has locked it on you because he he doesn't love you? Because he's trying to withhold from you? The mission of God will require us to be able to handle closed doors. Because in the handling of those closed doors, we will have what it takes to walk through the open doors. And the only way we get there is by looking at Jesus. Like it says in Hebrews 12 too, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross, scorning its shame. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, that, uh, that Jesus, you are not uh, a God who doesn't know what it's like uh, to be disappointed, who knows what it's like uh, to to not want to go through pain. And so you get us and you understand us. And I pray uh, that we would see that in you and that that would empower us. That would give us the strength to endure whatever lies before us. And Father, I thank you that you've written a story in which you will use us. You will use us as the church to fulfill your mission of bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. But for us to be able to do that, we have to be able to stand. We have to be able to face trials and suffering of all kinds with hope. So continue to build hope in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.